All right, here we go. This is the QTR Podcast. How the hell is everybody today? This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support me and the podcast on Patreon. I appreciate the shit out of you guys. I'm going to shout out some of the people that have been supporting me for a while, and then we're going to get on with the show relatively quickly this morning, because who wants to waste time with nonsense and banter? I was just listening to a couple of great podcasts this week, had mid-roll ads. I hate them. I hate them. That's why I will never stop interviewing somebody in the middle of a podcast. I'll always just put my shit here up front, fast forward if you want, or be nice and listen, whatever. I don't care. The important thing is that we're here together, holding hands and singing Kumbaya while the world burns in the background. Having said that, this podcast brought to you by my friends over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion is my exclusive gold and silver provider, the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. They ship discreetly. They have been in business for nearly a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They have a website that has incredible inventory on it. Their prices are reasonable. They're hell of a nice people to work with. And QTR podcast listeners, <clears throat> excuse me, can reach out to Laura, L A U R A, at jmbullion.com. And Laura would be happy to help you out, give you personalized service. If you have questions about shipping, inventory, pricing, whatever, Laura will make sure that you get taken care of. So shoot her an email and uh, and tell her that QTR sent you so that JM Bullion continues to uh, support the podcast and continues to uh, maintain our longstanding relationship that we've had. That, uh, that is fruitful. I, I feel it's been fruitful as a customer, uh, but also as somebody that can honestly advocate for them as a great place to buy gold and silver bullion. Having said that, that's enough kissing their ass. I'm sure they'll understand I have other things to do today. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Sang Lucci Trading. I love Sang Lucci. At Sang Lucci on Twitter is in my podcast description. You can click on that to follow him. They have an incredible community called The Steam Room. You can apply to join The Steam Room uh, using the link in my podcast description. It is a community that tracks flow in the markets, market psychology, oftentimes by checking out moves in the options market. These guys were doing unusual options activity before anybody had ever heard of it or was ever doing it. Uh, So they are the original gangsters of it. And as such, I think they have one of the best platforms and the best insights into it out of anybody out there. Also, I know that Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, great people to work with, honest people to do business with, which is why I don't mind shouting them out. A friend of mine, somebody that will help you try out the platform if you want for free. He will uh, just reach out to Sanglucci, tell him QTR sent you, tell him you want to check out the Steam Room. He would be happy to show you around, I'm sure, uh, with no bullshit, no credit card, no nothing. Here, just take a trial. The Q-Man said so. Or sign up and pay for the service, which is also a great idea. (laughs) And uh, keeps their bank account stocked so that they can continue to support my podcast. It's one big circle jerk of options trading and podcasting love. Having said that, this podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Doomberg. Doomberg is one of my favorite substacks to read. Doomberg, I would say that they're energy and commodity experts. They really understand what they're talking about. They look at the market through a skeptical lens. Check out my friends at Doomberg. That link is in my podcast description. Also, my longstanding supporters like shipping analyst Jay Mintzmeyer, my buddy Russ Valenti, my friends over at Investors Underground. Thank you so much for your continued support. And finally, support from myself. 
over at a little blog called Fringe Finance. If you like the podcast, check out my blog. It's called Fringe Finance. I post there almost daily. Quote the raven.substack.com. The link is in my podcast description. Thank you to everybody that has been supporting me over there as well. It has been a fruitful endeavor. I get catharsis every day and don't have to pay to get the diarrhea off my brain uh, like I normally would have to with a therapist. And you guys get a, uh, an email in your inbox every morning at 5 a.m. that you can ignore. So I think that's a pretty good trade. Uh, so check out the worst blog in the world, QTR's Fringe Finance or whatever it's called. No one cares. This podcast has a three-drink minimum. Uh, I am not a financial advisor, an investment advisor, or registered anything. I hold no licenses or registrations. This is not any type of solicitation to buy or sell securities. I would highly encourage you not to do anything that I say. I will remind you that I am an idiot. I get things wrong often, and uh, I am by no means an expert in finance. I'm just a peon in a sea full of imbeciles trying to make his way and drink some brandy in the process. Not bad. Wrapped it all up in under five minutes, folks. Not a bad one to listen to this morning if you're going to finally tune in for the uh, the introduction garbage. Hello. It's not garbage. I love my sponsors. I really do. And you know what? None of them give me shit about anything. So if you want to support the podcast, instead of being a Patreon, just go say what's up to Lucci. Say what's up to JM Bullion. Say what's up to my guest today, George Gammon, and his platform, Rebel Capitalist Pro. They've been supporting the podcast as well. And, uh, and just show them some love on behalf of QTR, and they'll know that, uh, that it's worth their while to support me, which I appreciate very, very much. I, you know, it's been cool having the same sponsors for like, I don't know, years now and not having to, uh, not having to trade a lot of in, a, in or out of them. Although the guy that sh- used to shoot pigs out of the helicopter, remember Hella Bacon? That guy was fun. I enjoyed shouting that out at the beginning of every podcast. Only my fucking old, old, old listeners know that shit. All right. I have with me on the line today my dear friend George Gammon. I have no idea how he continues to make time for me. He's so busy, and he's such a raging success in the podcasting and blogging uh, world. He's got, you know, he's holding conferences. He's milling around with, like, people in the financial industry. He's wearing nice suits. What's going on, dude? How are you? (laughs) Wearing nice suits. That adds to the credibility right there. No, I'm doing well. I've I've been uh, I've been battling a, an eye infection the last month, which is why I haven't been producing a lot of content. But uh, we're getting back to 100 percent and looking forward to getting back in the mix here real soon. I'll tell you a quick story. I just dealt with the same exact thing. I don't know the extent of yours, but uh, I was I was uh, out like two months ago or three months ago, and I was eating a hoagie. And I went to scratch my eye and I got mayonnaise. I had mayonnaise on my finger, like in my eye. And I had like, I got like four styes all in the course of like three weeks after. And uh, dude, it was like horrible. Luckily the Will's Eye Center here in Philadelphia is like one of the best ones in the world. But uh, yeah, dude, it was just like hell on earth. My eye was swollen shut for like two months. People are like, oh, jujitsu, huh? I'm like, eh, fucking put mayonnaise in my own eye. How about that one? Yeah, that, that's similar to to what I had. They're just uh, I'm in Miami seeing a specialist daily because they're concerned that the infection will move from the uh, eyelid itself into the eye, in which case it could potentially cause permanent vision loss. So, uh, is it like cellulitis? Kind of. Yeah, very close to that. Very close to that. Interesting. And and do you know like how it happened? 
Are you boxing? No clue. No, no, no. I had sur- I had another surgery on the eye uh, about six weeks ago. Then it kind of turned into this. So it, I was probably more susceptible uh, to something like that. But as far as specifically, I don't have the mayonnaise story. So. <laughs> well, like, how did you like when you first noticed it? Was it just like swollen one day? Your eyelid was swollen. Yeah, it looked like a sty initially uh, on the inside of, of my left eyelid, but then it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing to, to like you. Uh, my eye was basically swollen shut, and I, I it's so, um, you know, I was in Medellin. I saw a specialist down there because I started to lose my vision, and that's when, you know, something could be going wrong there uh, that could cause that permanent vision loss. So I saw a specialist down there. Gave me just a you know elephant antibiotics, went on those, and then I came up to a specialist here in Miami that I knew, and uh, he put me on even stronger antibiotics. And then they 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 cut holes, not to get too graphic, but they had to cut holes uh, in the outside of the of the eyelid to try to to drain it, but they weren't able to to do it very well. So, um, but now it's it's. Again, I don't want to TMI here, but uh, last night it's 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 starting to, to drain quite a lot, and, which is great. Which is great. Good. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Hopefully, uh, you know, I'll only have about another week of this and uh, and get back to normal. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's uh, it's really weird having something wrong with your eye. It's and I was having the same issue where I was starting to get. Uh, I wasn't losing my vision, but I was I had blurred vision all the time, and it was really you really forget how much you take for granted being able to just see yeah yeah and then you get headaches and i've yep. had a lot of headaches and nausea because of the blurred vision and you know reading and getting on the computer makes it worse so anyway if those people out there are wondering why i haven't done too many whiteboard videos lately or in zero interviews that's why <laughs> damn well hopefully you're on the men's brother you know hopefully oh, things, I am. Yeah. hopefully things are good but you're not you're not boxing uh How no not right now. see a picture I... of you you're always holding your fist up oh okay so that's i thought well, you were that, boxing that's a long now. story no i used to take boxing lessons when i first retired in 2012 in, in las vegas when i say boxing lessons i'm not talking about like at an la fitness or something i'm talking about proper proper real like hardcore boxing lessons right but i'm a huge fan of the ufc and uh you know when i first uh, started doing live events, people wanted their picture taken with me. And it's a little bit like Talladega Nights. Remember Will Smith where he like doesn't know what to do in the interview, so his hands are just like yeah. randomly <laughs> moving around. <laughs> and so I was a little bit like Will uh, or Will Farrell. I say Will Smith. Will Farrell and uh Talladega Nights. And so I'm like, uh, you know, I kinda like what the UFC guys do. You know, they always do kind of like the one fist. Yeah. So I started doing that. I'm like, you know, this makes sense because I always say that you got to stand up and fight for freedom, liberty, and free market capitalism. So it just kind of goes. And so whenever people say, uh, you know, you got to do the fist, I'm like, yeah, you got to stand up and fight for those three things. So you have to have a go to. That's why I do that. You have to have a go to for photos too. You have to have some shit that you do. You know, like mine was, has been like the shaka for the last like couple of years, you know, the, uh, yeah, the, the hang yeah. loose sign, whatever. But then, it, you know, it started, people started like uh, attributing people. Everybody was like, you do that too much. So I just started giving the peace sign now of the last like, 
You know, you got to have your little go-to. Funny story about that, not that you care or that anybody cares. When when Henzo Gracie first gave the the Shaka sign, which is like I think a lot, I think I think that may be where like the Shaka in jiu-jitsu originated from. I think it originated from this photo of Henzo giving the uh the Shaka, and I think everybody just kind of <clears throat> assumed that it fit because there's a lot of surf culture in Brazil. There's a lot of crossover between surf culture and jiu-jitsu culture. And, uh, and I think Henzo said in an interview after that that, like, he was just trying to give a thumbs up, but he had broken his pinky at the last uh, fight. Mm. And so <laughs> it oh, just, just kind of made funny. him look like he was doing that. And then, it, <laughs> and then it just stuck, you know. Now everybody does it. Yeah, it's funny how little stuff like that catches on. And now uh, uh, whenever I – or a lot of times when someone wants me to take a picture of them, if I've got my hand down, they'll actually ask me and say, can you do the fist? Can you do the fist? <laughs> like, okay. Fist me, George. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of being fisted, let's talk about what the uh, American public here is enduring at the hands of our central bank. How's that for a segue, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, yeah. What are we going to see from the Fed well, actually, what are we going to see from the official CPI numbers through the end of the year this year? Let's talk about what the mainstream is kind of suggesting. The idea that inflation has peaked is floating around out there has been for the last, you know, two or three months. We saw this last 8.3% print kind of, uh, kind of, you know, was a reality check for a lot of people that thought inflation may have peaked. Uh, we got two or three months here left in the year. What are things going to look like at the end of the year? Well, about, I don't know, four or five months ago, something like that, I did some whiteboard videos. And I rarely make predictions, but I did make one prediction, and that was that uh, inflation would go down slightly as, as measured by the CPI in maybe Q3, Q4 of this year. And uh, I didn't say that it'd go down, you know, 2%. I'd say, you know, maybe we get up to 9 or 8.5 or whatever. And then maybe it comes down to 8 or 7 or 6 or something like that. But then most likely, you know, it probably goes back up because these are the cycles that you see, whether it's the 1940s uh, and an inflationary decade that most people don't talk much about in the United States, or the 1970s. It didn't go up in a straight line, not at all. In fact, I watched a, a, a kind of a debate between Milton Friedman and a Keynesian economist that was very well known in the 1970s. This was probably 76, 77. And this was just in a period where they had a little bit of a lull. And the Keynesian economist was claiming victory uh, on inflation. And he was claiming that it was because the government used stimulus to uh, you know, lower the unemployment rate, and that created more goods and services. And that's what brought down the inflation. And uh, Milton Friedman argued, no, they're, they're creating more currency units, and therefore this is going to turn into higher inflation, uh, but there's a bit of a lag. And we know in, in retrospect that you know, Milton Friedman won that argument. Um, so, But going back to that prediction, I saw the things that created the inflation in the first place. You know, you can say it was all government intervention, like it always is, uh, due to the uh, the COVID, you know, and they're just insane policies and locking down the global economy and destroying supply chains. And then so you decrease supply and you increase demand. Well, that's going to give you consumer price inflation every single time. Now, the question is how they do that. 
And so I don't know that the supply chains are going to be fixed anytime soon. I think they're still broken, but I think a little bit better. But on the demand side of the equation, they did stop the STEMI checks. Now, there's still a lot of programs out there that are in place that are reducing the average Joe and Jane's expenses. You know, so if you look at their P&L, but there isn't anything right now that's uh, increasing their uh, income like those stimulus checks did. And that's why you saw M2 just absolutely skyrocket. So um, now so they do have more purchasing power in the, from the, uh, the student loans being um, uh, you know, forgiven, some of the student loans and some other of these policies, but not to the degree to which we saw in 2020 and 21. So if you conclude that that was why we got up to, let's say, nine point whatever in CPI, and if you take out one of those factors, then it's I think it's safe to conclude that the CPI comes down a bit. Again, I'm not saying it goes down to 2%, uh, but it, it goes down slightly until you get another wave of uh, monetary stimulus, uh, in which case you would expect to see those prices rise again. And I think that that's probably what we'll have. The bond market right now is kind of saying that that's going to happen sometime in 2023, uh, maybe about nine months, a year. You know, the highest interest rate right now is on the one-year treasury. So that would lead you to believe that the bond market is saying that the Fed will probably start cutting rates uh, about a year from now. So maybe the, you know, August, September or so of 2023. And uh, in, in which case you would expect inflation to kind of maybe go down slightly, but again, not down to where it was before. Uh, and then you get another wave of it. But uh, one thing that people aren't really thinking through is uh, the potential black swan. And, you know, the economy is fundamentally very unsound. And so I think there are a lot of possibilities to get something, some sort of uh, either financial crisis or maybe better said an economic crisis yep. because I think the next crisis might not ne might uh, uh, not be with financial it might be energy uh, could be food it could be a lot of things out there on the horizon so if you get one of these uh, crises that come about you could have inflation go from 9% down to negative 2% just within a month or two um, now, this is just unforeseen, very similar to what we saw during the GFC. So in the GFC, there was about a six-month period when we actually had deflation. Uh, so that would be harder today because of everything that's happened with the supply chains. But it is possible, if you get another COVID as an example, uh, for inflation to quickly go from nine all the way down to two. But that wouldn't be because of the central bank directly. Uh, indirectly, it would, because they're the ones that caused the bubbles and the and the kind of the black swan, the potential black swan events in the first place or the central planners and the authoritarians. But uh, that's kind of the way I see inflation most likely playing out, excluding a black swan event, is it kind of gradually goes down a little bit, uh, maybe down to 7%, 6%, and then something triggers the Fed in, in 2023, uh, summer of 2023, to start lowering rates and whatever that is that, that causes them to start lowering rates is something that, uh, uh, you know, has brought inflation down maybe temporarily. And then the response to that gives us another wave of inflation and who knows how high it goes then. Well, let's talk about black swan events. Uh, 
the one that I continue to write about is I still think that the rate hikes we've already consummated over this last six months have not caught up to the economy yet. I think, you know, I, and I can only use 2018 as a comparison where we hiked, uh, you know, a quarter of a basis point every Fed meeting for three years until we finally got to, you know, two and a quarter or whatever it was. But we we hiked very, very, very slowly and over a very long course of time. And we woke up one day expecting to uh, have a nice holiday morning and hit the eggnog. And all of a sudden, everybody's 401k was down 10 percent one week leading into Christmas. And that, of course, is the famous point when Steve Mnuchin called the banks as if there was anything he could say or do that was going to be of any relevance. But uh, I think and then, of course, the Fed eventually pivoted after that. I think now, you know, what we've seen is 225 basis points in hikes, soon to be 300 or 400 basis points within a year. And I don't even think we've start to see the economic shock of the rate hikes that have already taken place yet. So I feel like, honestly, I still feel like we are a train heading a million miles an hour into a brick wall. And I think that we are going to notice it one day in the form of we wake up and the credit markets have seized or there's capitulation in the equity markets. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a snowball rolling down a hill very quickly that's going to be exceptionally difficult to stop. So Give me your thoughts on whether or not you agree with me there, and then also expound on some of these other black swan events that you're talking about, energy, food, things that I haven't written about. Yeah, so as far as there being a lag with monetary policy, I I think that's uh, absolutely the case. I I don't, we got to remember that the Fed really controls the short end of the curve, but the long end, not so much. So if we go back, let's say, three or four months, the Fed was hiking. But remember, the, the 10-year was actually going down right. as they would hike, You know, implying that, okay, Fed, if you're going to hike rates, well, then there's just a higher probability that you create a recession, which is going to be disinflationary. And therefore, every time you hike rates, we're going to go down. We're going to take the uh, – you know, we're going to buy the – 10 years therefore yields go down and so you know you have to ask what rates most impact the real economy and i think that would be the long end of the curve i mean obviously the short end you're talking about uh, probably corporate debt and um you know a lot of the, the the bigger institutions in the united states the publicly traded companies and whatnot but when you look at the the average Joe and Jane, I think they're more dependent on the ten-year. And so, if the Fed's raising rates and the ten-year is going up at the same time or at the same level, then yeah, I think that's going to have a lag and it's going to be very impactful. But it, I, if you have a scenario where the Fed's raising rates and the ten-year is actually going down, um, I don't know that that would impact the real economy to the same degree that makes sense yeah it does so right right now we see the 10-year going up rapidly uh we see the entire curve really uh going up but i'd like to remind everybody the yield curve the twos and tens all the way to the to the six month and the 10-year has been inverted for what two or three months yeah this is not this is not a good sign 
And I remember when the yield curve first inverted about six months ago on Twitter, the bulls were coming out saying, oh, it's no big deal. It only inverted for two or three days. And you can't, <laughs> I you, remember can't that. you can't read anything into that, blah, blah. Okay, well, now it's been inverted for three months. And now it's inverted all the way to the six month. And now what they're saying is, well, sure, it's inverted with the six month and the tens, but it's not inverted on the three month. And that's what you really, really got to watch out for. It's like, yeah, but what happens before it inverts on the three month? It inverts in the six month. What happens before it inverts in the one year? And so it's it's always, it never inverts on the three month first. And another kind of secret that I learned from my good buddy, Jeff Snyder, is as far as timing goes, you know, because it, when the twos and tens invert, you know, there's an extremely high probability that you get a recession, but it can happen 18 months, two years down the road. It, it, it's tough to really time. But one thing that you can use that, that Jeff uses is something that's very bizarre. It's something I can't remember the exact name. It's called like the two year hence H E N C E. So if your listeners just Google, Fred, you know, for the, the St. Louis Fed, two year hence, it's a chart of what the expected rate for the two year is going to be like, I don't know, six months out into the future or a specific time frame into the future, it might be two years. Um, and according to Snyder, and he knows a lot better than I do, uh, pretty much every time that that inverts with the two year treasury itself, that doesn't mean that you're going to get a recession. That means that you're in a recession okay. and that the Fed is going to reverse course very, very soon, like within uh, weeks, if not uh, if not months, if not a week or so, or within the weeks, excuse me. So uh, that's what I would suggest, kind of a, a little bit of insider information for your your listeners to kind of check out. And that's one thing that I've been watching. But just for kind of the uh, people they don't want to, dig that deep and get that esoteric just watch the three month and the 10 year and uh once that you know we got to about 10 basis points but now it's about 20 basis points but when that inverts uh, that's when you know that um there's a high probability of, of things moving a lot quicker as far as the fed pausing or actually reversing and uh that's usually the indicator that you're actually in a recession although i think there's a strong argument that we're already in one, considering we've had two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP growth. As far as uh, a black swan, I don't know if it's too much of a black swan, but uh, as far as something that could really impact markets negatively, is really this issue with China and Taiwan. Oh, yeah. I mean, what uh, Nancy Pelosi did by going to Taiwan was was one of the stupidest things I have ever seen a politician do, just absolutely nonsensical. I've been listening to Ray uh, it's Dalio's like, it's, book. It's almost like going to Chinatown in the middle of a pandemic that has originated in China. You know, it's almost the worst possible idea you could come up with. Yeah, the, but I, I did hear something that might explain it. I, I still don't agree with it. But uh, in Dalio, in this book that I'm listening to, it's called The Changing World Order. Very good. He talks about, he goes way back in history with all of these uh, Chinese dynasties and uh, you know, going back thousands of years. 
and how you see these cycles with countries or nations when they empires and they, how they rise and how they fall. Right. And um, one thing that he uh, points out is whenever you get a changing of the guard where you have one nation coming up and one nation declining, usually what you see is the declining nation will want to start a war sooner than later and the up-and-coming nation will want to postpone war for five to ten years. And it's obvious why. Because the up-and-coming nation wants to postpone that hot war if they know they're, if they know it's inevitable. Right. They want to postpone it five years until they can gain more strength. And the declining nation wants the war to happen as quickly as possible while they still have a comparative advantage. So I'm not saying that's what's happening here, but well, it, that's it, it the only thing that makes me, sense to me. It reminds me of the headline like last week that I saw that China now is trying to get their military ready to invade Taiwan by 2027, they said. So while everybody's worried about, oh, they're going to take Taiwan tomorrow, this headline broke last week, I think, or maybe it was even earlier this week. I think it was last week that... China has put out a statement saying they want their military to be capable of taking Taiwan by the year 2027. And I was just thinking, wow, all right, that's five years away. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just, <clears throat> if you look at it through the lens of the Chinese, uh, I'm not going to say it makes sense, but you, you can see, you know, historically why they're, they're doing it. And then if you look at it through the lens of the United States, uh, assuming that, um, the politicians are, are doing this. Uh, I mean, who, who knows? Again, for Nancy Pelosi, see, that's where it doesn't make sense to me. I can't imagine that Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden would do something for the long-term benefit of the United States. Uh, they're just doing something, whatever is politically expedient. And I don't understand how poking China in the eye with a stick is uh, politically... Uh, good for either of them but um yeah, maybe there's something there that, that i just don't see and there's so many things around the world right now that are just completely baffling uh the, the china policy with covid that's another thing that's just uh, a head scratcher to me maybe they're the only thing i can uh the only conclusion i can come to and it's just a random hypothesis is they're trying to prepare their society for using far fewer resources in the future knowing that there's a good probability they will go to war with the United States. Sure. And uh, also, I think, you know, I think there's two different. I wrote about this, I don't know, a couple months ago, and I, I postulated two different things. One was either they knew something about the virus that we don't know, which I don't think is the case at this point. And the second is that along the lines of what you're saying, that maybe they are preparing the country to be able to lock down the supply chain on cue, right? So if you're going to enter into any kind of war with the United States and, you know, I've, I've written over the last couple of weeks, couple of months that this forthcoming, you know, bifurcation of the, uh, of the world between the BRIC nations headed by China and Russia and the West, Mm -hmm. um, I think is going to be fought in a way that is not 
you know, conventional. I don't think it'll be fought through conventional means. I mean, there will be some hot war aspect to it. There will be some military operations that take place. But I think a lot of it is going to be done via the Internet, uh, via economic means, and via cutting off the means of uh, production for the things that allow us to have the quality of life that we have. If they can suffocate the dollar and they can substantially lower the quality of life in the United States, you know, at the point where the country's already kind of a powder keg, there's a good chance that they could really sow the seeds of uh, chaos in the country without ever having to launch a military effort, right? And they could go and... Go ahead. Well, yeah, they 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 win without ever shooting a bullet, and I, I again looking at Dalio's book and and the study of China's history, I it would make sense that that's an edge they believe they have. Uh, you know, we look at their central planned economy, kind of communist slash capitalist society, and and we look at the negatives. But some of those things that we see as negatives, they actually see as positives, that uh, they have a benevolent dictator, let's say, that can't be voted out of office, therefore they can make long-term decisions. Uh, they would see that as a positive, um, kind of a central thinking and a plan for the entire country. Uh, they see that as a positive, and their ability to just have patience, sit and wait, and also their priority on the collective, you know, so they look at the United States and they say, oh my gosh, you know, it's just collapsing internally and we're not going to allow ourselves to collapse internally because we have this strong, you know, hierarchical power setup. And so we'll just sit back and, you know, kind of squeeze where we need to with the United States, give them a little more inflation, give them fewer high prices, you know, let them bring manufacturing back, cut them off with the pharmaceuticals or whatever it is. And then we'll just let them do what they do. And, uh, you know, this decentralized weakness of theirs and just deteriorate right in front of our eyes. Uh, Like all societies and civilizations have that have gone through these cycles. And the cycle is quite simple. Dalio goes over it. And a lot of historians, I think, make it overly complex. But it's very easy to understand. It's just that old saying, Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. And it just happens over and over and over. It's happened with the Dutch. It's happened with the Portuguese. It's happened with the Chinese. It's happened with the, the, you know, the Ottoman Empire. It's happened with Britain. It'll happen with the United States. It just, it's the way we're hardwired as human beings. And so one other black swan, though, that I've been really thinking about, and this may more fall in the category of an actual black swan, meaning that no one's, it's not really on anybody's radar, is uh, the dollar going up. So the dollar's at 110 right now on the DXY. Right. This creates a massive amount of economic pressure on countries outside of the United States. And you say, okay, well, George, who cares? It's not affecting the U.S. Yeah, but eventually it will, right? Uh, Eventually, in a a global economy, there's uh, a lot of systemic risk. 
And if we, if the, I don't know what the number is, you know, 120, 130, 140, I don't know. But at some point, the, the dollar going up is not just going to be XYZ country's problem. It's going to be the United States problem as well. And so I, I think, and, and you got to look at why the dollar's going up. What's well, going up because of all this uncertainty? Okay, well, is there, and, and also because of interest rate differentials. So you've got the, the bond market telling you that the Fed's going to raise, let's just say for another six months or another year. Okay, so we've got another year of the dollar going up, and it's already at 110. I mean, look at what gold's doing. Gold's telling you the exact same thing. And so you have this combined with all of these um, you know, kind of powder keg type situations from a geopolitical standpoint, which is further tailwind to the dollar. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about the dollar against goods and services in the United States. Right. That can continue to depreciate. And, uh, you know, they, they can continue to, de- quote, unquote, devalue the dollar domestically while the dollar continues to skyrocket against other fiat currencies. People conflate the two, and that's a big, big mistake, right? So think about this. If you go into a world where the dollar's at 140 and the United States realizes that this is not just crushing other countries, but it will crush the United States as well, what do you do? I think they go into a Plaza Accord 2.0. Same thing we had in 1985, what is that where the like? Fed, the Fed probably just prints a massive amount of bank reserves to buy the yen, buy the euro, buy uh, you know whatever to uh, flood the market with dollars, dollar bills, the, the international market to be clear, the international market with dollars, and so I think the black swan there could be that they miscalculate remember when roosevelt uh messed with the price of gold and rickards always says that that he got the price wrong you know and it's it's no surprise that these uh central planners you know they've got all their formulas and we we've seen how uh, well that helps them predict things like inflation transitory uh you know and other we've seen how well it helps them, uh, you know, micromanage the economy. Obviously, I'm joking. They, they do a terrible job of it because the, the economy, you can't micromanage it. It's not like a thermostat on your wall. So my point there is they try to bring the dollar down, but they inadvertently bring it down too far. And there are all these unintended consequences where the people that were buying dollar-denominated uh, assets like treasuries, all of a sudden – they know that the Fed is going to intentionally bring down the dollar. Well, what would you do with your dollar assets if your expenses were denominated in yen? Uh, you'd, you'd sell them. You'd fire sell them. If you knew, the let's say the yen at that time is at 150, and you knew that the Fed was going to take it to 70, what, what the hell would you do with your treasuries? Right. You, you'd fire sell them. Because you know the purchasing power of those treasuries in your local currency is going to absolutely plummet. Yeah, and this is one reason why I think that you're getting a bid at the long end of the curve. Because if you're a, a Japanese pension fund, let's use them as an example again, and uh, you can get 
let's say a 3.5% yield on a 10-year or for, for heaven's sakes a 4% yield on a 1-year why would you not take why would you not buy that especially the 1-year i mean if, because and then the argument there is that well it's still a negative real yield because the inflation rate is 8.3%. But the Japanese don't care about the inflation rate in the United States. What do they care? Their expenses aren't denominated in dollars. They, all they care about is the cross rate between the dollar and the yen. So if they can buy the dollar, which they think is going to appreciate in value relative to goods and services in their country, and they can get paid 4%, that's a no-brainer for them, right? Or in you, it could be Japan, it could be Japan, it could be Europe, it could be any of these uh, countries with their pensions, sovereign wealth funds, etc. But that happens in reverse if they know not just making a bet, but they know definitively that the yen is going to appreciate in value, or the euro is going to appreciate in value significantly against the dollar then they fire sell everything, then the long end of the curve skyrockets. And, you know, w w what, what happens then to the economy in the United States if mortgage rates go from, call it at the time, there's uh, 7 or 8%, what happens if they go to 14 15% right. <laughs> within the span of three or four weeks because all these foreign entities are dropping the, the treasuries because uh, they know the Fed is going to devalue the dollar globally. So I think that's a, a black swan that, that no one's really thinking about. Yeah, what do you think about, um, you know, how China and Russia are kind of posturing up here together economically? Makes sense. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Does I the, mean, China makes stuff and they don't have resources, and Russia doesn't make a lot of stuff and they have resources. Right, right, so, exactly. So it's like a match made in heaven, right? Especially if you're going yeah. to especially if you're going to take on the West. And now they, I saw she and um, Putin both met with uh, Nandra Modi last week or two weeks ago. So they're shoring up their alliance with India as well. And uh, it, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I wrote an article a couple weeks ago called A Broken Clock Cries Wolf Twice a Day. And the premise of the article was to take exception with all these people that continually say anytime an Austrian economist or a skeptic or somebody that has a less than incredibly optimistic euphoric take on the market offers even a peppering of a dose of reality. People say, oh, well, you know, broken clocks right twice a day or, oh, you know, you're just crying wolf. Right. And I just keep thinking to myself, I mean, this just happened with COVID, right? We just went through it with COVID where me and you and a select group of other people, Chris Martinson, some other people were ahead of the curve saying this is going to be a big fucking deal. Nobody paid attention. We said, look, it's, it's not a big deal until you wake up one morning and it is. And I feel like, okay, I can understand the argument being made because Austrian economists are essentially playing – for all the chips at the end of the day, as Schiff would say, right? They're playing to be right once and for all at the end. And so with every turn of the corner, even though if they get things right, seemingly with the Band-Aid, the Fed's able to put on it. And if they, you know, there isn't uh, exceptional economic collapse, then okay, they're proven wrong. And that was their one second where they were right. And now they're, they go back to being wrong again. I feel like now there are so many things happening collectively that you really have to have a certain type of ignorance to not at least entertain 
the idea that there is a small chance that we are on the precipice of things changing meaningfully, relatively permanently, right? We, we're, we're suffering from an inflationary crisis. We have energy shortages. We're going to have food shortages. There's already food shortages globally. You have Russia and China who have taken efforts to de-dollarize over the last 10 years, now banding together, supporting each other's economy, supporting each other's currencies. You have Russia going into Ukraine and this precarious situation where the U.S. is part and parcel with a group that's kind of half standing idly by watching it happen and and half, you know, supporting Ukraine through these, uh, you know, backwards financial assistance packages that we continue to give them, which, by the way, we can't afford while people in you know Detroit are drinking water that looks like mud. Uh, and you have China now on the precipice of going into Taiwan at some point, certainly posturing up as if they're going to. Another situation for it reminds me of when I used to play the game Risk. You know, when I first started mm. playing that game, I very quickly found out that if you spread yourself too thin, if you want to get a foothold in too many countries with not enough troops, not enough resources, and not enough of a foundation back home, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's what it feels like we're at right now. George, $31 trillion in debt, inflationary crisis, supply chain issues, you know, on this weird limbo between are we going to defend Taiwan? Are we not going to? Are we going to defend Ukraine? Are we not going to? No, very little productive capacity. Politically, kind of in chaos, right? The, 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 there's a whole political party pushing for so destructive socialist policies in the country. You know, the country itself, it's the cities are falling apart. Uh, rates are at 2% going to 4%. I mean, it just feels like, man, I mean, could this be the big one? Could this be the big breaking point coming up here? Yeah, so again, if you're China, just sit back and enjoy the show yeah it's like in chess when you have when you have a piece when you have a piece pinned a bullet you know you know when you have a piece pinned in chess right a lot of times when you first start playing you you immediately want to you know you want to capture and you want to keep moving but a lot of times if you have a spot in a good position it's like okay we'll leave that and start playing somewhere else on the board and then you get into another good spot somewhere and it's like okay now leave that now keep playing somewhere else on the board right so they're just leaving yeah and every day that goes by, it's like they get a little bit more leverage. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no problem. And I don't mean to imply that China doesn't have a lot of problems. I mean, short term, they've got big, big problems over there as well. But um, you know, to your point, I think the only way that you could come to that conclusion, that bullish conclusion, you know, the top that, oh, you Austrians are just crying and a broken clock is right twice a day. Type of thing. You'd have to be completely ignorant of economics, and you'd have to be completely ignorant of historic cycles. Right. So, I could make an argument if I wanted. If we were in a debate and I had to take the other side, I'd say, "Well, Chris, that's true." But if you go back throughout American history, I mean, you could have said that the the world was coming to an or everything. You could have pointed out a lot of negative. Um, economic uh metrics back then as well you know you know i mean i remember listening to people in the 1970s talk about how the united states was 
oh my gosh, we're a billion dollars in debt now. Yeah. You know, the world is coming or whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying that's what it was, but you know, some very, very low numbers sure, that would be sure. around there today and saying that the world was going to come to an end. And you know, you got the Cuban missile crisis, you've got the cold war. Look at what's happening with Russia. You, you could have pointed out a lot of negative things that were happening in the world and happening economically throughout the history of the United States but we still managed to do well. So that's why I say that would be a valid argument if you completely ignore ignore the economic cycles or the, uh, the uh, cycles of history that empires and civilizations go through. So if you were to say, you know, point out a lot of problems in the 1950s, as an example, right, but if you look at that through the lens of historic cycles, you would see that, okay, that's at the end of a world war. Uh, you know, you're a decade later, and the probability of shit hitting the fan, so to speak, within a decade of a world war, um, probably pretty low uh, because you look at these sites, you know, they're 80-year cycles if you want to look at the fourth turning. And if you look at the, the, the you know, the country like the United States, uh, the, the probability that it's in stage five or stage six of this cycle that Dalio talks about, stage five and six are the end stages. Um, right after you win a world war, you're 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 not at that stage, right? Right. So now it's 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 different from the standpoint of yes, there are a lot of economic problems. Yes, there are a lot of geopolitical problems and powder kegs, but there's also something that you have to layer on top of that which is the fact that we're in the late stage cycle as a society, as a civilization in the United States. Now, right. I don't want people to take that as though within five years, the United States is going to look something like Mexico or is going to look like Venezuela today. No, no, no. Listen, the Britain as an example, they went through this exact same cycle and, uh, you know, they're not Venezuela. Uh, there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, look, look at the European nations that have gone through this before and they don't necessarily, it's just that they have this slow deterioration and decline and they're not the world superpower they once were right. and standard of living kind of stagnates. So you could imagine the United States, that what we have seen over the past, I would argue, 10 years since they really started doing QE, maybe a little before then, and what has accelerated quite dramatically over the last two years, uh, you're just going to see more of that. And it's probably going to happen a lot faster. And this is the, the wealth gap, uh, the, uh, boy, I, I would say civil, social unrest. You, you're just going to see a lot more of this. Um, you're going to see the middle class being hollowed out. You're going to see a lot more homeless people, a lot more drug use. Already happening. Uh, all this stuff's already happening. You can All you got to do is open your eyes to see this stuff. Go ahead. Yeah, you're just going to see a lot of deterioration. I mean, the whole state of California is probably going to look like Detroit. Uh, it's it, it just – but there's going to be pockets that will do well, and there's going to be some people that will barely even notice – but as a, as a society on net balance, you know, the standard of living 
uh, goes down significantly, but it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it just happens very slowly. So from a standpoint of investment or from a standpoint of you know entrepreneurship, something like that, you, you got to ask yourself, uh, you know, if you want as much tailwind at your back as possible, uh, the United States probably isn't the, the best country in the world right now. That said, that said, if you're someone who really values personal freedom and liberty, maybe it is. Because, listen, if, if China's the dominant power in 10 or 15 years, and even the, the dominant economic power, that doesn't mean that they're the world leader in personal freedom and liberty. Right, right. Very good, very and, good and, point. Yeah, I would argue that to, to the contrary. So, um, you know, if you if you're someone that has those um, uh, as priorities, right? Yeah, then then you know the United States might be the, your best bet, even though the standard of living is going to decline, and we're going to go through some crisis situations, and you're going to see a lot of social unrest. Uh, I would argue. The, the place to be would is probably a, a poor country where the government just doesn't have enough money to to meddle uh, with your day-to-day activities right. that's where I like to spend most of my time in countries that are they're not third world uh, they're very nice they're very pleasant you know, I spend a lot of time in Colombia as you know in Medellin and the standard of living is very very high cost of living extremely low but the government really um, isn't big enough or doesn't have enough money to really uh, you know, give you problems. Now, that could change, but that's why I think over the next eight years going into 2030 that if possible, people need to have as, as much personal flexibility as they can as to, to where they want to spend time. And because the world is just changing very, very quickly. So there's a lot, there is no perfect country right. where economically they're doing the right things and they're also doing it the right things from a standpoint of freedom and liberty. It's just, uh, you, you've got to just assess the pros and cons and then prior and then determine what your priorities are. Yeah. Very good points. Uh, because a lot of times I spend time writing about how things are deteriorating here, but it is also, Worth noting that, you know, just because a country like China may be advancing on the economic stage or, you know, there's tremendous sacrifice that comes with that, like you were saying earlier. I mean, they're preparing their people to be a nation of rugged individuals, right? Like we were 60, 70 years ago in order to in order to achieve this progress and to affect significant change. And uh, and so there's trade offs that come with that as well. And I'm not by any means saying that, you know, things are. uh, honky dory there and things are happy and joyful all the time or that it's you know replete with liberty and freedom because that's not the case but it doesn't mean that there's not cause for concern on our end and it also doesn't mean that um you know the quality of life as as we know it as you know as relative to what we've been used to here in the country isn't gonna isn't gonna decline right yeah yeah it's it's another thing i tried to think through is an example of a country that has been in stage five or six, as, as Dalio outlines in his book, those are the last two stages, that has pulled themselves out of it. 
And I, I can't find an example of that. Really? I wish I could because you, you, if you're an optimist, which I, you know, I, I like to be to a certain degree, I like to be a realist first and foremost, but looking at the glass half full, you'd say, okay, well, let's not just wave the white flag here from an economic standpoint. What can we do in the United States to change things? And obviously there's things that we could do. Now, would they, would you be able to pull them off? Uh, that's a different set of probabilities. And based on what history has shown us, the answer would be no. But um, I still think it's worth trying. Yeah, and uh, I think I think you make some very good points. I want to ask you a kind of simple question now, and just one more comment on that. You know, you're talking about historical cycles. It's just one of those things where if you don't really get it, if you're not really seeing it the way that you know we're talking about it, or the way that I write about it, or the way that a guy like Andy Sheckman talks about, it, just zoom out. You know, and I think that's that's. Yeah something I've been saying for 10 years, 20 years about monetary policy, zoom out. We shouldn't be thinking about a, you know, six month plan or a one year plan. Certainly the Chinese aren't right. They're thinking about what the next hundred years, the next 10 generations, yep. right? Yep. Zoom out. That's right. Look at, look at what the country has become over the last 60, 70 years, how we, the profound changes in productivity, the profound changes in monetary policy. Has that weakened the country? Or has it made it better? You know, and those are the kinds of very serious questions that when you look at them over the span of decades instead of, you know, quarters or election cycles is another one that, you know, people like to use. Uh, I think it just becomes a hell of a lot clearer. So, uh, I, go yeah, ahead. And, and that's one blind spot or Achilles heel that I think we have as a society because our country is so young. I mean, in a country this young, uh, 50 years is a big deal. That's right. In a country the age of China, 50 years is a, a blink of an eye. And so I think it's far easier for them to just have that long-term thinking ingrained in the psyche of the culture and the society at large. Let's talk real quick about... COVID, because last week, I think President Biden said, all right, well, the pandemic is officially over. And, uh, <laughs> you know, because that's how a pandemic ends. It's, uh, you know, an 80-year-old, yeah. an octogenarian by decree. Yeah, by decree. <laughs> stands at a podium and says, we've done everything we can do, and there's no need for alarm anymore. And, uh, and I think it's, it's, really, it's really, obviously, um, the timing here. This has nothing to do with midterms. Right, right. right he just happened to make this announcement. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, you know, where you think the country is at in terms of have. I really think there was somewhat of an uprising that led elected officials to believe that the public isn't going to stand for lockdowns or bullshit anymore. I think they got the message. I really do. I, I predicted at the beginning of this year. I wrote an article that, you know, 2022 would be the great COVID pivot. The mainstream media would be forced to pivot. Vaccine mandates for restaurants would go away. Just, you know, capitalism and common sense would kind of drive that outcome. Uh, where do you think we are as a as a country? Uh, and really, you know, I guess globally, too, in terms of COVID. Have you looked at this? Uh, I, I, I put something up the other day from Dr. Richard Ebright, and uh, he was kind of laying out 
all the 2018 NIH grants and all the things that make it, in my opinion, very clear that COVID came out of a lab. Uh, I want to know if you looked at that at all and how that's kind of being a little bit more. It just certainly seems like natural immunity, George, a lot of these things that were conspiracy theories at the beginning, uh, all of a sudden have once again are being gently kind of sprinkled into the public discourse in the ether and accepted. You know, my guess is ivermectin and and hydroxychloroquine will be the next uh, will be the next things kind of accepted now that billions of dollars in vaccine sales have been made. Uh, where do you think we are here, and how do you think yeah, this just, has, uh, has ended over the last couple well, of months? Yeah, what's interesting is I just saw an article in the Huffington Post saying, I, I don't know what the exact headline is, I don't recall, but it's something to the effect, uh, the, here are the side effects that you need to be aware of with the new booster shots. <laughs> like, think about them coming out with that a year ago. Right. Or there, I, I, my point is, there's no way they would have come out and said anything other than safe, effective, safe, effective, safe, effective. And now all of a sudden, you've got the Huffington Post coming out and saying, "Well, there. I mean, there are some side effects that uh, that the, the true scientists are 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 finding that you need to be aware of." Right. Type thing. And you know, you had a great article that I retweeted yesterday. Where you're, you just basically highlighted thirty or forty of these comments that have been made by the people in the mainstream, uh, the authoritarians, the central planners, and the mainstream media that have been proven unequivocally false, or where they just completely contradicted themselves. And these are the people that are trying to censor the rest of us. They're the ones that are, uh, you know standing up and shouting about the dangers of misinformation and disinformation. Right. And they're the ones who are spreading the most disinformation and misinformation themselves. Right. And it's, it's, it's ironic, but I guess, again, if you look at history, that's the way it usually works. Uh, another book I was reading the other day or listening to, they were talking about in the 1930s, how, whether it was the left or the, the extreme left or the extreme right, from a standpoint of communist Russia or Nazi Germany, uh, they both set up effectively what was kind of the ministry of truth. And it was a propaganda, and it was where they tried to control the societal narrative, and then they tried to really influence or control the media. And it's always for the same reason. It's always to uh, prevent uh, dissidents or, you know, the way they always set it up is people that are dangerous to democracy right. or people who are, are dangerous to the objectives of the collective state that we all agree on. In this case, you know, maybe the science or something like that. It's obvious that we're evolved to the point where we want to follow the science right, Chris? And the science says blah, 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 blah. And therefore, anything that you say that is contrary to the science, it needs to be squashed and it needs to be censored. Now, this is the argument that you've heard over and over and over and over again from totalitarian regimes. And it's the exact same argument you're getting today 
from the central planners, the mainstream media, and the authoritarians. Right. It's the, it, it, it absolutely word for word verbatim. Why? Because it's worked. You know, these people aren't stupid. They they read some of the same history that you and I read. They look at what happened, but there's a different interpretation. See, they look at what happened in Nazi Germany and say, oh, wow, you know, th that worked well. That's a great idea. Let's go ahead and implement that. Where you and I look at it in absolute horror. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's always that's, interesting, that's, like, that's... as it's unfolding, you know, to hear guys like you, and you're way more preemptive than I am, and I will give you credit for that. Uh, you certainly were with Russia going into Ukraine. I think you had uh, a clearer take on it than I did uh, from the get-go. Um, and and with COVID, I I bet at the very beginning I would have succumbed to the the fear a little bit more than you would have, and I'll admit that. And and I you probably had the sharpest, clearest mind take on it. But it is very interesting at the beginning to look of these events and and see people like you that say, oh well, this is. You know, there's a lot of fear being used here, and, uh, you know, fear helps get people to do what you want them to do, which, by the way, I totally agree with. And I said at some point, you know, a month or two after the pandemic became a thing, but probably not as early as you did. Um, but it's interesting looking at that then and then looking back at it now. And, you know, when we were in the midst of the vaccination campaign, I was fucking proper weirded out because I was stoked on getting the vaccines out there. I thought it was going to take, you know, 12 months, despite the fact that everybody said 18 months. I thought it was going to be a uh, I thought it was going to be a like net positive at first. Um, of course, I didn't predict that they were going to be mandated, which I wouldn't have supported. Uh, and I didn't predict uh, I couldn't predict the what I called a Soviet-style propaganda campaign to get vaccinated. And when it started happening, I was f fucking freaked out about it. It was just like, eh, it's like one of those, it's so it's obvious, like one of those yeah, it is. And it's like one of those books you read, man. It's like, you know, I remember this, uh, this book I read in, in like high school called the wave, you know, about, about a group that starts in a high school and it becomes a cult and everybody starts walking around with the, the patches on their arms and, you know, it just kind of spun out of control. And that's what I felt like. I felt like, holy shit, like, look at all these people just walking around. Like, everywhere I go, I would go for a run. There was this old billboard on a back road in New Jersey that I was running on regularly when all this shit went down. Like, way off the beaten path. It was like a, an access road that was closed. So the billboard got, like, no traffic. Even that billboard Somebody had pasted a fucking thing over it. You know, New Jersey Department of Health, get vaccinated so you can go back to your son's hockey game or something. It's a picture of a grandmother, you know, going to her son's hockey game. Like, let's get back to normal. Just get the shot and everything will go back to normal. And of course, you know, that was part and parcel with the other lies. Like, it'll stop COVID. Yeah. You won't get the infection, all this other shit. And everybody got the shot. And what happened? We didn't go back to normal. They fucking tried to do the mask mandates again after the vaccinations and everybody said fuck that we're not doing it we're not fucking doing it. yeah which is another uh positive for the united states long term when you've got a society that's that's that willing to give the finger uh to the government once they get frustrated enough that that's that's the society where you want to be if, if you're someone that values that personal freedom and liberty you know they they most likely uh, wouldn't have done that in in China, and I, you know, I remember end of twenty twenty. I was right around Thanksgiving of twenty twenty one when the Omicron 
uh, variant came out. And I tweeted, and I said, you know, this could be the end of, uh, of COVID. Everyone's getting freaked out about it. But I said, this could be the end of it because it gives Biden a way out. Right. Where, where he can say, okay, well, now this isn't as bad. Therefore, we can pull back all these policies that are wildly unpopular. Because remember, that's when they were, you know, forcing the airlines to fire pilots and that was uh, you know, that didn't crazy. get the. Oh yeah, that and then remember the, the the nurses and the frontline workers. They're firing them if they didn't get the shot, and they were wondering why. You know, we're, we have a a lack of uh, uh, of pilots and a lack of nurses. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, exactly. One headline it's would be one headline of... would be the mandates, and the next one would be Biden administration is attempting to help you know help uh, stop the airline pilot shortage. It's like. The left hand doesn't know yeah. what the right hand is doing. Par for the fucking course with government. But, you know, geez. Yeah. But uh, it, it just it just goes back to kind of having to scratch your head and wonder, at, at the time, what is their plan? You know, what is the motive here? What, what's the objective? Because it really doesn't make sense. And if the objective is just to maybe strengthen the unity of your team, Right. right, meaning the left and right. I, mean, I think, quite frankly, that if the right would have uh, taken the position initially, taken the position that the uh, COVID was bad and everything, and the left would take, we'd be in the completely opposite. I mean, there there is no uh, intellectual rigor here right. with the the right <laughs> and the left. No, it's, there it's isn't. just it's just simply what what team are you on, right? And based on what team you're on. That's what you you believe, and that's why I think it's so important to be principled. You're talking before about uh, kind of my response to when COVID first struck, you know, March of 2020, April of 2020, and uh, you know, looking back in retrospect, yeah, I, I, I fortunately made some good calls, but that was very difficult to do. You know, now you can look back and say, oh yeah, well, standing up for uh, or standing up against the lockdowns made a lot of sense or the mask mandates, or whatever. But back then, that was not an easy decision to That's make. Right. Uh, it's not, a, it was it, even for me. And there was times there that, that I thought I really had to say, you know what, Th- this, my position on this could kill a lot of people because there just wasn't enough information. Right. And, and at the time it, well, it makes sense. Masks, Looks like they're going to work to me. Why wouldn't they work? You know, it just kind of intuitively made sense because you're putting something over your face or lockdowns. I remember when Sweden first kind of bucked the trend there with the lockdowns. I was concerned. I remember thinking to myself, this might not end well in Sweden. And so, but I remember, and I remember like it's yesterday. It was actually on your podcast. You you asked me point blank what we should do. And it was a very difficult question to answer because, again, at the time, we just didn't have any information other than this was going to spread very, very quickly because the r not value was so high. Right. And it could impact uh, hospital capacity. And th- this could be, you know, we could talk about millions and millions of people dying here. And I said that I, I don't know how bad it's going to get 
It's, it's not the flu. It's going to be worse than that. But we have to let people make their own decisions. We have to, if people want to go outside, let them go outside. The government should give the people as much information as possible. But then you have to allow them to make their own decisions. If they want to get a vaccine, great. If they don't, fine. If you want to keep your business open, great. If you want to go outside and walk your dog and play on the beach, you go nuts. But here's here's the data. You're an adult. Now go ahead and make the best decision for yourself and your family. And people can say, oh, well, that's bad because of X, Y, Z. Right. But you're dealing with a situation that's a cost-benefit analysis where there is no good solution. There's only a bunch of bad solutions wow. or bad decisions, and you got to pick the least bad one. And you walk, and so, you walk through the city now, and you see how many businesses are still shuttered. All right, all you got to do is walk down a place like South Street in Philadelphia, and you can see the storefronts that have never reopened from COVID. And you look at the damage that was done by the lockdowns, combined with the negative consequences we're feeling now from papering over the economy by printing the money. And you just look yeah, back. Yeah, that's the big thing you, there. You just look, look back at, and say there, the, there, there had to be, even enduring the pain and just letting people do, like what you said, just letting people make their own decisions, we would have had a much better outcome. We'd be in a better place now. But again, as is usually the case with monetary policy, we don't want to take the medicine when it's time. We want to kick the can down the road. And so the consequences are worse so that we can feel a little bit better, you know, at the time. Yeah, it's it, what it boils down to is people don't like to make hard decisions. Correct. And so let, let's just say for a moment that if and, and I don't believe this is true, because I think the lockdowns actually made it a lot worse from a health standpoint. But let's just say for a moment that if we would have locked down even harder or longer right, that we would have saved uh, another million people. But yet inflation, instead of being at uh, 8.3% right now, would have got up to 20%, which is better, right? right? We, we, is 20% inflation for two years worth a million people? I don't know. Because, and someone that didn't really have any economic understanding, they would say, okay, well, of course, we're going to take the inflation. Well, not so fast. Because that 20% inflation for, let's say, two or three years, you're going to have a massive negative impact on a lot more than a million people. Right. And it might not lead to them dying, but it might. you might have an additional million deaths plus the destruction of purchasing power therefore the lower standard of living the anxiety the drug use the 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 physical abuse the physical assault the crime that goes up all of these things how do you quantify that and those are the tough decisions that 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 societies and and people don't like to make because they like it to they they want it to be a movie right They, they want it to be like a tom cruise mission impossible movie where there, there's there's a, a silver bullet right. that, that we can use that will just give us all, a, everyone, a happy ending. And what they don't understand is that's not the real world, especially when you're going through these late-stage cycles. Is You've got a, a lot of, like I said, a lot of really bad this, uh, uh, options, and you've got to pick the least bad. 
But if we're, if we're not even willing to have the conversation, then there's no way we can make the right decision. That's right. And that goes back to this censorship that we were talking about. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, look, it, it, this is the way out. If you want to know the way out, this is how we do it. Now, I think the probability of us moving this direction is quite low, but if, if, if we wanted to get serious, if I had to kind of draw out a game plan, it's where people on both sides start to have public debates. I, I think that, again, let's go back to uh, COVID, right? If you could have had the, the top uh, per, proponent of the vaccines or the vaccine mandates, and then you could have had like Brett Weinstein and, you, and, and Joe Rogan would have hosted a debate between both of them I think that would be that's the if you start doing that with these hot button issues, that's the way I think we progress as a society and get back to uh, you know economic strength and as far as inflation, monetary policy, fiscal policy, all of these things, and that's what they used to do in the 1970s. You know, I watch YouTube videos of Milton Friedman debating all of these people, and it's it's very civil, very civil. And a lot of it was on public TV, on PBS and whatnot. Yeah. And so, I, but now it's the complete opposite, where if you're on one team, you don't even want to talk to the other team because they're not worth uh, your time. And their ideas are, quote unquote, dangerous, right? That's not how you make good decisions uh, when the only the, the options you have moving forward are, are bad options. It's just taking the least bad and where you have to do a constant cost benefit analysis of everything that's happening. You know, again, Russia is a great example of that. Look at the sanctions. You want to talk about not doing a cost benefit analysis. I mean, that, that's exactly like the lockdowns. They're just, let's just do, you know, knee jerk reaction on what we think is going to be most politically expedient, what's going to bias the most votes, and let's just virtue signal right. and the, the results be damned. And then when you look at the actual, yeah, you know, I get this on Twitter all the time, and it, it never ceases to amaze me. Where even now you can you can look at uh, the sanctions and say, well, they were the only people that they really impacted negatively were the Europeans and and people. And uh, sure, I'm, you know, it's not like negative or uh, Russia came out unscathed there, but the major people that it impacted were the average Joe and Jane in Europe. And then you look at this, uh, the price cap, right? You want to talk about complete economic insanity. Um, this is just complete virtue signal. Obviously, to anyone with half a brain, it doesn't affect uh, Putin at all in the, in the least. The only thing it's going to do is negatively impact the average Joe and Jane in, in Europe. And you, you hear these people on Twitter constantly say, well, we have to do something. Uh, that's always the, the pushback. Well, we have to do something. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. If doing something is going to make it worse, then, then don't, don't do, do anything. that. Right. It, it's just the position that you're in. And uh, it's just another great example of people not having the ability or the willingness to do a cost-benefit analysis. And it's something we just absolutely have to do not just uh, with an individual level, but at, with the politicians, with the, the central planners, 
all of them, that if we are to come out of this late stage cycle and hit the reset button, you know, <laughs> not to use that word, but uh, if, if, if we're able to start again at cycle one to where we're back on the economic upswing here and we're going to remain a world economic superpower, then uh, again, these are the things that we have to just basic stuff, but it's just so hard for people to implement. Yeah, well, I think it's your willingness to stand on your principles and react accordingly, even when it is uncomfortable, like you said earlier, that is what draws people to you. And I think it's what makes you a, a unique voice. And, you know, the only, the only person off the top of my head that I can think of that I know stands by their principles as um, as steadfast as you do, probably Schiff does that. And Ron Paul mm. comes to mind, too, was just oh, yeah. unwavering in uh, – in standing by his principles, and it showed up in his voting record too. You know that that he would be often yeah, right. be he would often be the one vote against something that even people on the on the right side of the aisle would support because it didn't it didn't stand by his constitutionalist principles. And so there's something to be said for that, and I think people need that, and I think people now are seeing the benefit of it more, and I think going forward they will. And so. You know, look, I, I just uh, before I let you go, I want to I want to thank you again for continuing to support um, my show. I want to encourage my listeners to check you out over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. That link is in my uh, podcast description. And if you if you want to just let people know what you have going on over there uh, now, hopefully that you're on the men's and then I'll uh, then I'll let you go. Yeah, it's just it's a great investment resource because you've got uh myself lynn alden chris mcintosh you've got their back-end research and then you've got live streams with other pros like brent johnson uh, patrick serezna jason hartman on a monthly basis that are exclusive for our members so uh if you're trying to figure out what to do with your portfolio to really not just uh survive but thrive in this insane world then I, I think you should check it out. I think it's well worth your time. One thing I want to leave your listeners with, though, as far as an idea, some food for thought that I think we should all be contemplating right now, is that we didn't touch on the global elite, and I think this is a, another power dynamic that needs to be addressed. You know, we talked about the United States and China, but I think it is um, a little different than past history that Dalio talks about because of this... Uh, the global elite are like a nation in and of themselves as far as this thirst and lust for power to dominate the, the, the world, in my opinion. And there are two main objectives. If, if you really get down to the nitty-gritty of, of what they explicitly say, and it revolves around climate change, oh, it's, they, they, want to, they want the rich countries to use a lot less energy and they want the poor countries to reduce their population growth. Right. That's in their words. Now, you might say they want to reduce their population, period. And I think there might be an argument for that. But then look at, and I would encourage all of your listeners to look at the EU's response or the, the kind of the central planners over there. Look at their response to Russia. And notice what it's doing. It's, it's creating an environment where the rich countries are using a lot less energy and the population growth in the poor countries 
Africa, South America, is probably going to be reduced via food shortages and food crisis. So you're creating an energy crisis, reduces energy use in wealthy countries. You're creating a food crisis, which most likely reduces population in the poor countries. And you're doing it all in the name of sticking it to Putin. But I think it's 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 interesting and I would say suspicious that all of these policies just so happen to uh, get us closer to the global elite achieving their objectives. Just food for thought. Sure. No, I think you're dead on. And I think climate change is going to be the vessel with which they, uh, you know, it's going to be the next little fear carrot hanging on a string that if we don't do this, you know, by the so-and-so point, we're all going to die. And, you know, you're not a good person if you don't support it. And which is just ridiculous because you can support common sense ways to deal with climate change. Um, but again, I think it's a, a brilliant way to kind of force the hand of weak minded individuals. And it would really be a, a great tool to kind of shoehorn their way uh, into the agenda that they want going forward. Uh, you know, not the least of which includes, you know, printing and spending trillions more uh, money, reallocating trillions more in purchasing power to uh, to the resources that suit their needs, right? Yeah, and it all goes through them first. You know, before we go here, one quick question I've got for you that, that I wanted to ask, because I've been trying to figure this out myself. Uh, do you have any friends or know of any people that are still wearing a mask and if so not not that again that's your personal decision go nuts uh i have nothing you know i I don't want to disparage that but if so have you asked them what their end game is because Um, and I've, i've wondered that myself when i see someone wearing a mask i'm like i wonder have they thought about what their end game is because covid isn't going away Right. It's 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 gonna be here. So have they, like, actually thought about the fact that either you got to rip the bandaid off right now, or you're gonna you've got to be okay with wearing a mask quite literally for the rest of your life. Right. And I don't know if they've had that internal dialogue. So I'm just very curious if if you've had that conversation with someone. Well, I'm not sure that they have. You know, I have some relatives that are a little bit older that uh still wear masks and uh you know i don't give them any shit for it it's they can do whatever they want um and you know i'm fine with uh i support that i support their right to wear a mask if they want to so do i i'm just Um, i'm just curious what their rationale is yeah i think that um from what i can recall broaching the subject you know i think i just got an answer like we'll stop when we're comfortable and i think that i think that that's going to be the case with a lot of people, and I, and I think a lot of this is psychological. I think a yeah, lot of people yeah. have to come to terms with what has happened, you know, what the outcome has been, what the, you know, reality of the situation is. Um, and that's not something, you know, that's like somebody that has endured uh, some, some mental trauma of sorts. Yeah, it's like a PTSD type thing. Yes, and it doesn't just go away. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. it needs to be processed. It's uh, yeah. it's like something that, you know, you would go to a therapist for almost. You know, it's something that, that needs to be processed. It doesn't just, uh, 
you know, it doesn't just uh, go away on its own. I don't think not in any type of timely fashion. Um, right. And so, you know, look, I see it every day here in the city. I see people walking around on a day to day basis, you know, on the uh, you know, on the path on Kelly Drive, going out for their runs with masks on walking through the city, you know, in the in the open, fresh air with their masks on. You know, I don't know what it's going to take. And uh, I just I just saw somebody this morning when I was running too. I was outside. I was at like 38th and Market just walking around with a mask on young person. And, you know, part of me wants to be like part of me wants to be a dick and be snarky about it. But it's really it's their decision. And I think for a lot of people, you know, they'll eventually come too. it just. It just takes a while, I think, for for people to process everything that's gone on. And I don't think people, you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't see the world like we do. Yeah, I and, think that's what, and, what I was going to say. In yeah. addition to that, I think there's a lot of people out there that see the world the total opposite way that we do. So when we are, our biases are more prone to protecting ourselves, protecting our liberties, you know, acting within reason, finding pragmatic solutions, um, and, you know, just trying to, uh, just trying to be pragmatic in general. I think that there are a lot of people that are the total opposite. I think people probably in the middle have started to realize that, okay, you know, maybe I don't need this mask anymore. Um, but I think there's a lot of people all the way on the other side of the spectrum that will make mountains out of molehills, not because they, you know, not because it's any fault of their own. It's just it's a product of how they think, or it's a product of their upbringing, or whatever. You well, know? I think it's a pro- it's a product of how they don't think, and and I'm not I don't say that to make fun of them, I, I, because that's fine. Most people I I think make decisions based on their emotions and how they feel, and I think you just hit the nail on the head. They're going to stop wearing a mask when they feel comfortable, right? And where, where you and I would stop wearing a mask if we just look at a chart and say, "Oh wait, these masks aren't working." Okay, I'm not going to use it, regardless of how you feel. Right. <laughs> that chart's going to override uh, what you're doing. And then for me, like I said, it's it's you, know, you got two options: you rip the bandaid off now, or you just tell yourself and be okay with the fact that you're going to wear a mask for the rest of your life. Right. And I don't know about you, but there is no way uh, that George Hammond is going to wear a mask for the rest of his life, you know? So, well, you know, yeah. and, and I'd love to, I'd love to support you, but I just don't care enough to try to even, you know, say, well, you got to do it now or you got to do it never, you know, just do whatever you want. I'm fine. Just don't yeah. fucking make no, me wear one. You know, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm in the exact same boat. I was just, I'm always just fascinated about the psychology behind the decision-making process. I, of course, yeah, and I do. I do think it's. I think there's a deep psychological element to it. You know, I went back and listened yeah. to Dr. Robert Malone and um, Dr. Peter McCullough on Rogan, yeah. which I really thought marked the turning point. By the way, in terms of the mainstream narrative on things, having the yeah. you know, it was those articles that prompted me to write my article at the beginning of this. Uh, those interviews that prompted me to write an article at the beginning of this year, saying you know, the mainstream media was losing the fight of its life against Joe Rogan, which I really thought was the case. And now we've seen, you know, basically just a, uh, a complete and total, um, uh, purge at CNN, <laughs> you know, which I think is 
kind of the result of what started at the beginning of the year. But I went back and listened to those things, and you hear him talk about, and Weinstein talked about this too back in the day, about, you know, the psychosis that, that results from this. And uh, it's very real. Uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's a very real state of collective psychosis that the world yep. has been placed into some degree. And so uh, it's going to require more than just, you know, Mayor Kenny saying it's okay to not wear a mask for some of these people. And that's fine. I wish them all the best in dealing with it. But, you know, I got shit I have to do in the meantime. And so do you. Yep. Yep. All right, George, thanks so much for coming on, dude. I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time for taking an hour and a half for my my rinky-dink little podcast when you are really crushing it with all your shit, man. I'm so happy to see you doing well, and I think uh, I think my prediction holds true that either you or Colm is going to wind up on Rogan before the end of the year this year. So you got three, <laughs> three, three months to make it happen, and I, and I better get a goddamn shout-out. That's all I can say. <laughs> all right, Chris. Thanks for having me on, buddy. It's Talk to you fun. soon, George. Thanks, buddy. That was the one, the only Mr. George Gammon of Rebel Capitalist Pro, one of my absolute favorites and just a wonderful person to talk to and an incredible resource. Thank you guys so much for listening. I will be back with a new podcast relatively soon, but for right now, I have shit to do, as I mentioned already. That doesn't involve you. Sorry, I'd like to boost your ego and tell you that I'm thinking about you all day, Mr. or Mrs. Listener, but the answer is, unfortunately, I am not, so I'm out of here. Fucking peace.